This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of child abuse, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. A long limo pulled up to a huge crowd outside the University of Maryland in 1974. People screamed as it came to a stop, and the door opened. The man they had been waiting for had finally arrived. Elvis was in the building. The king stepped out and gave a big smile for his fans. He looked a little more bloated than they expected, but his swagger was unmistakably that of royalty. Elvis started to walk toward the crowd, but as he stepped onto the curb, he suddenly fell. Behind his jewel-encrusted sunglasses, his eyes glazed over. As members of his entourage rushed to help him up, he pushed them away. He was fine. It was nothing. He yelled something, but his words were so slurred, no one could understand. Despite obvious pain and disorientation, Elvis made it past the crowd and took the stage. He looked out at the fans waiting with bated breath. Elvis could feel the weight of their anticipation, just like any other night. He opened his mouth, but nothing intelligible came out. He couldn't speak. He could barely keep himself standing. The last thing he remembered was turning to look at his band. Half of them had tears in their eyes as they watched him struggling. Then, everything went black. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our fifth episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use, to the exploitative creation of pop stars, to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. 
You can find episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're taking a look at Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll and one of the best-selling solo artists in music history. Elvis changed the face of music, fashion, and American culture at large, but at the cost of his own mental and physical health. His unprecedented fame caused him to build an insular world full of sycophants who could not tell him no. With their eyes only on their own bottom line, they enabled Elvis as he fell into deep drug addiction and loneliness. Eventually, as a result of his drug use, the king died at the young age of 42. He left behind some who had been with him since his humble beginnings. Elvis Presley was born in Tupelo, Mississippi on January 8, 1935. His parents, Gladys and Vernon Presley, were very poor. Vernon worked a series of odd jobs, but had trouble finding steady employment, and the family relied on government assistance to make ends meet. Elvis didn't have many of the things he wanted growing up. He was bullied because his family was poor, so he didn't have many friends either. But he did have music. From a young age, he liked to sing, and for his 11th birthday, his parents scraped enough money together to buy him a guitar. With little else to do for fun around the rural town, Elvis developed a passion for the instrument. He played gospel music at church and country music at home. He even strummed his guitar during lunchtime at school. He couldn't afford music classes and never learned to read music. Instead, he played everything by ear. When Elvis was 18 years old in 1953, he got a job driving a truck for an electrical company. But on his off time, he was fostering grander ambitions. Later that year, he went to the studios at Sun Records to rent some studio time and record a couple of songs as a gift for his mother. While there, he asked the receptionist if any groups were looking for a singer. When she asked what kind of singer he was, Elvis responded, I don't sound like nobody. But it sure sounded like he could be somebody. After hearing him record, the receptionist made a note next to his name. The head of the studio, Sam Phillips, had often spoken about searching for a white man who could sing like a black musician. If he could ever find a singer like that, he thought he could make a billion dollars. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, traditionally black music forms like jazz and blues were immensely popular in the early to mid 20th century. But black musicians themselves were heavily discriminated against, especially in the South. Concert venues were segregated. Some radio stations refused to play music by black musicians. Only a handful of performers were able to transcend the assumption that black music 
was for black listeners only. Sam Phillips wasn't exactly interested in fighting discrimination on the airwaves. What he wanted was a way around the rules. A white performer who could capitalize on those musical trends and also attract mainstream white audiences. When Phillips heard Elvis Presley's demo, he saw dollar signs. The year after his first demo, Phillips called the 19-year-old Elvis back to the studio in 1954. After having him sing again for hours, Phillips finally heard something he liked when Elvis performed the blues hit That's All Right by Arthur Crudup. Phillips sent the recording to a popular Memphis radio show, and it became a local hit. Many listeners initially assumed Elvis was black, but the DJ interviewed Elvis on air to dispel the misconception. After the local success of That's All Right, Elvis began touring around the South under the direction of his new manager, Bob Neal. By the beginning of 1955, he had become a regional star. He was noticed by music promoter Colonel Tom Parker, who booked him on country singer Hank Snow's tour that February. Tom Parker would come to play a huge role in Elvis's success, but he was not all he appeared to be. Though the colonel claimed to be from West Virginia, he was actually born in the Netherlands in 1909 under the name Andreas Cornelis van Kauk. He jumped ship and immigrated to America sometime around 1929 at the age of 20. After briefly serving in the army and working in a carnival, Parker found his true calling in music promotion. Elvis's manager, Bob Neal, considered him the best promoter in the business and a marketing genius. After the stint with Hank Snow, the colonel soon booked Elvis on a string of high-profile tours. He was soon promoted to be the up-and-coming star's special advisor. The tours netted Elvis more hype, as did his growing confidence as a performer. He had always been a bit uncomfortable singing on stage. At first, his legs twitched and his hips swayed in an unconscious, nervous tick. After noticing the tick and the reaction it got from the women in the audience, he refined his twitches into more choreographed dance moves. His swaying hips gained him the screams of swooning fans and the ire of conservative men. Just two years after his debut, Elvis was already an incredibly polarizing figure, generating either obsession or genuine hatred. There were efforts from more traditional groups to paint him as a purveyor of the devil's music, leading teenage girls into sexual temptation. According to his manager, Bob Neal, the hatred was so powerful that they sometimes had to hire a police guard. Jealous teenage boys whose girlfriends were Elvis fans would try and jump him after concerts. But despite the backlash, the record executives and venue owners were happy to let Elvis take the heat as long as he kept selling out concerts. With the constant threats and insults, Elvis came to trust only a select few people in the business, and his managers gladly kept him isolated from the others in order to avoid sharing their seat on the gravy train. The more his star rose, the more Elvis began to rely on Colonel Parker. The Colonel made sure Elvis never wanted for anything. By March of 1956, Parker even replaced Bob Neal as his manager. 
The Colonel now had complete control over music's biggest rising star. He booked Elvis tight that year and engineered a seven-year contract with Paramount Pictures. Elvis was excited to try his hand at acting, and he was having the time of his life singing to hundreds of rabid fans every night. His rapid success even silenced some of his critics. In early 1956, Ed Sullivan said that Elvis's performances were too risque for a family audience. But just a few months later, after an Elvis performance boosted the ratings of his rival Steve Allen, Sullivan apparently had a change of heart. He booked Elvis on his show, Morals Be Damned. The ploy worked. The night Elvis appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, the episode was watched by a record 80% of TV viewers. Compared to Elvis, almost every other artist in America was small potatoes. By the end of 1956, his singles accounted for a full 50% of RCA's song sales. But his greatest asset, his youth, was about to become a liability. In January 1957, he turned 22 and received a military draft notice. His service would take him away from performing for at least two years. Most in the industry figured this would be the end of his career. But the colonel had other plans. He believed that if Elvis took his two years off, served as a regular soldier, and turned down any special treatment, he would win over many of his critics and return to civilian life even more famous than before. The move was risky. Many thought rock and roll was a passing fad, and by the time Elvis came back, his day in the sun would be over. But the colonel promised Elvis he could keep his fans happy by amassing a stockpile of new material and releasing it gradually during his deployment. Elvis eventually agreed. In March of 1958, he was sent to Fort Hood, Texas for training. The next two years would make or break his young career. Up next, Elvis reports for duty. Now back to the story. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. In 1958, 22-year-old Elvis Presley put his music career on hold after being drafted into the Army. Military life was difficult for Elvis. He genuinely did want to be seen as a regular soldier, but he was the most famous musician in the world. Many of his comrades couldn't help being starstruck. Meanwhile, he had to fight off the constant worries that his career as a musician was already over. Unfortunately, Elvis would soon add one more crushing grief to the list of problems weighing on his mind. In August of 1958, Elvis received word that his mother Gladys was dying. He applied for leave from the army, and he was right by her bedside when she passed on August 14th. She was only 46 years old. Gladys's death tore Elvis apart. Their relationship was extremely close, and she had been his strongest source of emotional support. But he wasn't able to take more than a week off to grieve. He returned to training and was deployed to West Germany in September. He was assigned to be the driver for a platoon sergeant, which came along with a few special privileges that made his situation more bearable. 
He was allowed to live off the base, and he flew out his father and two of his friends to come stay with him. Of course, Elvis's entourage was never complete without a lady. After dating a German woman, Elizabeth Stefaniak, for a week, he offered her a job as his secretary. She agreed and moved into the house with the others. Elizabeth was about to learn that behind closed doors, Elvis was subject to mood swings and flights of spitefulness. Once, when the couple was out shopping, he told her he was looking for a small trash can for his bedroom. When she pointed out that he already had a trash can, he suddenly became irate. He stormed out of the store and said, if I want a thousand trash cans in my bedroom, that's my business. Elvis's celebrity and the backlash he'd received made him hyper-paranoid about other people. And being in Germany made him even more on guard. He constantly worried that he was being taken advantage of and wouldn't hesitate to excommunicate his friends if they crossed him. On the other hand, his testiness was balanced by moments of generosity and kindness. Along with the free housing, he gave his friends and father a fairly substantial sum of money each week in return for their company. He was adamant that they were not his employees, but they were more like lackeys than friends. They did whatever he asked of them. His kindness and friendship made it easy for his entourage to dismiss his flashes of temper. Elizabeth once said, he had a way of making anyone feel they were the most important person in the world to him. But even Elvis had his limits, and the stress of living in a foreign country, processing his mother's death, and performing his duties as a GI were wearing him out. He was on the verge of collapsing from fatigue one day while practicing army maneuvers at the base. Then he received the answer to his prayers. A sergeant noticed his exhaustion and offered him an amphetamine tablet to keep his energy up. He took it. As we discussed in our episode about Johnny Cash, the side effects of amphetamines weren't understood in the 1950s and 60s. The majority of the medical community, along with the average layperson, considered them to be miracle drugs. Elvis's sergeant boasted about the energy the pills provided. Elvis was also won over by the fact that they acted as an appetite suppressant. He was always conscious of his weight and appearance. The pills allowed Elvis to keep up with his various obligations and still have energy to spare on the weekends. He soon convinced many of the other soldiers in his unit to try them, along with his friends Red and Lamar. Finally, Elvis's life felt like it was under control. He was energetic and focused. He had a place that felt like home, complete with his friends and family. The only thing he was missing was the emotional support his late mother had offered. Colonel Parker stepped in to pick up the slack. He wrote to Elvis almost daily, keeping him up to date on business dealings, but also providing much needed moral support. To demonstrate his confidence in the young singer, the colonel didn't take on a single other client while Elvis was abroad. He gave his star performer his undivided focus. The colonel was the only person who could do no wrong in Elvis's eyes. He started butting heads more often with his friends who felt that he was acting too arrogant. 
Those humble ideas about being just a regular soldier all went out the window when Elvis started taking amphetamines. Now he was the life of the party at all hours of the day and night. By 1959, a year into Elvis's two-year term, Red West reached a breaking point. He resented the way Elvis used his fame to get everything he wanted. Red went back home to the States and was promptly replaced by another of Elvis's friends, Cliff Gleaves. It seemed there was an endlessly revolving door of companions who would keep him company for the right price. The door kept spinning when it came to girlfriends as well. Elvis's friends were tasked with recruiting women to go on dates with him. In August of 1959, one of the wingmen spotted 14-year-old Priscilla Beaulieu in a cafe and asked if she wanted to meet Elvis. After convincing her parents, Priscilla came by Elvis's house and spent the evening with him and his friends. As was customary on his first dates, Elvis sang some songs and introduced her to his friends. He was surprised by her young age. Most of his dates were between 16 and 18, but he apparently wasn't deterred by younger girls. He treated Priscilla politely and asked her to come see him again. On their second date, Elvis asked Priscilla to spend some alone time with him in his bedroom. She nervously agreed, but what happened next wasn't what she'd expected. Elvis just sat next to her on the bed and chatted with her for hours. Things moved quickly after that, and soon the pair were seeing each other almost every night. It wasn't long before they were sleeping in the same bed together, though according to Priscilla, she and Elvis did not have intercourse. He said he wanted her to remain pure because of her age. Meanwhile, he continued to see other women, and he was markedly less interested in keeping them pure. Elvis's time with Priscilla was intense, but short-lived. His deployment in Germany ended in 1960, and he left the now 15-year-old Priscilla behind while he embarked on a comeback tour in the United States. On March 2, 1960, Elvis returned to America and was met by thousands of screaming fans at the airport. He dutifully followed the colonel's instructions, bouncing from one interview and performance to another. It all went exactly as planned. Elvis was more popular than ever, and the strategy of releasing songs slowly over the course of his deployment had left fans hungry for more. For the next several years, Elvis capitalized on his star power by appearing in a number of films. None were very serious, but most of them performed well at the box office. To keep up with his demanding schedule, Elvis kept taking amphetamines by the boatload. The pills made him irritable and his temper got shorter. Once, Elvis was playing pool with his friend Sonny and a woman who was at the house with them asked Sonny if he could move his car because it was blocking her in. Elvis yelled at her to ask someone else to move it since they were in the middle of a game. When the girl replied that he was an SOB, Elvis threw his pool stick at her. His friends still dismissed his temper as a side effect of stress. They were all feeling it, and the responsibilities were nothing compared to the king's. 
they overlooked the fact that most of them were taking massive doses of amphetamines, which was likely what caused their tempers to flare. The more Elvis's misconduct was tolerated, the more extreme it became. Though he remained largely civil on film sets and at interviews, he made fewer and fewer concessions to the few friends in his increasingly hermetic personal life. For example, after dating a woman named Nancy Sharp for a few weeks, she arrived at his home wearing pants. Without giving an explanation, he curtly greeted her when she sat down next to him and then proceeded to completely ignore her. For the next few hours, she sat in uncomfortable silence, wondering what was wrong. At the end of the night, Elvis kissed her goodbye and finally explained, don't wear pants again. From then on, Nancy only wore her nicest dresses when they met. She knew that if she didn't bow to Elvis's demands, there were literally thousands of women willing to take her place. Elvis and his companions actually competed to see how many women they could induce into the house. It spawned the worst kind of childish, predatory atmosphere imaginable. Elvis had a secret two-way mirror installed in the pool house where the women changed into their bathing suits. When women didn't do exactly what he wanted, he threw tantrums. Even with his platonic friends, he expected complete loyalty and subservience. He had bodyguards around him constantly. He paid his friends to stay around, so he expected them to entertain him at all times. Elvis's expectations did not mellow with age or seniority. At a party in 1961, the 26-year-old cornered two of his companions, Gene Smith and Sonny West. The two were whispering about which women at the party they were interested in. But Elvis thought they were gossiping about him. He threatened to break a bottle over their heads if they didn't tell him what they were talking about. Sonny called his bluff. He didn't believe Elvis would hit him. In response, Elvis told Sonny he was fired and punched him in the face. With tears pouring from his eyes, Sonny left. This kind of treatment toward his so-called friends discouraged them from questioning him or acting in his best interest. Instead, they devoted their energy to creating an atmosphere of a non-stop party. This only led Elvis deeper down a rabbit hole of addiction from which he would never escape. Up next, Elvis yields to pressure on all sides. Now back to the story. During the early 60s, the long nights and drug abuse were starting to leave Elvis Presley empty. Now, in his mid-twenties, he had accepted his role as the face and voice of generic Hollywood fluff. His manager, the Colonel, discouraged him from recording anything except movie soundtracks, which were dull but highly profitable. Elvis didn't particularly like this kind of work, but he couldn't deny it made money, and it seemed to satisfy his fans. He instead looked for fulfillment in other places, he had been writing letters to his one-time girlfriend, Priscilla, since he left Germany in 1960. In 1962, he decided the time was right to see her again. After extensive negotiation with her parents, 
the now 17-year-old Priscilla flew out to the States a couple of times that year. Elvis was enamored with her, and she was still head over heels for him, too. She was willing to do whatever it took to win his heart. That included taking amphetamines and sleeping pills to keep up with Elvis and his entourage. One day, she was feeling anxious, so Elvis gave her two red pills to relax. She slept for two straight days. The entire time she was unconscious, Elvis claimed he was worried that she was going to die, but he didn't take her to the hospital. After Priscilla's second visit, Elvis declared that he couldn't live without her. After long arguments, her parents agreed to let her move in with Elvis and finish her senior year of high school in America. They had little choice at that point. Priscilla was determined to go so they could either get on board or lose their daughter for good. But Priscilla's new life in Memphis was not everything she had hoped. Elvis was gone most of the time shooting movies. She stayed with Elvis's father, essentially living in limbo until her man returned. When he was home, things improved. He took her out, bought her anything she wanted, and allowed her to do whatever she felt like. The two slept in the same bed every night, but they still didn't have sex. Elvis claimed that it wasn't the right time, and he wanted it to be perfect. He also wanted her to be perfect. He recognized that she had sacrificed her entire life in Germany for him. She hadn't dated anyone else for years, while he had been gallivanting with whoever he wanted. Priscilla was obviously willing to do whatever it took to be his one and only. So he wanted to shape her into his ideal of what a woman should be. He took her shopping for nice clothes. He gave her directions on improving her appearance and had a dentist put porcelain over her teeth. He had her dye her hair black like his and lectured her on how he expected his ideal woman to behave. The most important thing he expected was that she keep up with him. She didn't want to take the pills he gave her, but she hardly had an option to say no. Elvis had always surrounded himself with only yes-men. He saw any kind of rejection or criticism as disloyalty. So he told Priscilla that turning down the pills meant turning down his lifestyle, and he wouldn't slow down for anyone. Priscilla did her best to be everything that Elvis wanted her to be. But it was difficult for a young woman to navigate the insular world Elvis had created for himself. Priscilla was surrounded mostly by older men who weren't quite sure how to take to her. Elvis got very jealous when any one of them talked to her for too long, so they mostly just ignored her. Many of Elvis's entourage had known each other for years. There were undercurrents of interpersonal drama and unwritten rules that Priscilla had to learn. Once, she made the mistake of telling Elvis she liked his new record, but wished he would include some of his older rock and roll edge to the bubblegum soundtrack music. He responded that he got enough opinions from amateurs and that she should stick to yes or no answers from now on. As a matter of fact, Elvis privately agreed with her. He was making more money than ever, but he knew people didn't take him seriously as an artist. By the time Priscilla was 22 years old, 
she was getting more and more adamant that they get married. Elvis loved her, but he hated to lose his bachelor status. He felt like marriage was an admission that he was getting older. But finally, in the face of pressure from Priscilla, her family, and his own father, he proposed just before Christmas in 1966. This satisfied Priscilla. But on the business side, the colonel had his own demands for Elvis to reckon with. After working together for over a decade, the colonel wanted a new contract, one that would make him close to an equal partner in his client's dealings. He already received a generous fee, but he had been the single driving force behind Elvis's massive promotions, film deals, and immense success. He felt he deserved a little more. Elvis agreed. He never concerned himself too much with money, and it was undeniable that the colonel had constantly supported him over the years. He gladly signed a new contract in January of 1968. Now the colonel received a full 50% split of profits on top of the flat contract fee. This kind of profit sharing was not unheard of but was relatively rare and represented a substantial increase in the manager's rate. He took advantage of the new arrangement right away. He soon worked out a new deal where Elvis received smaller flat fees for upcoming films in return for an extended contract. And of course, the colonel received half of the profits from that extended contract. But there was a hole in the carefully laid plan. It depended on his star actually showing up for work. Up until 1967, that had never been a problem. No matter how much he hated the material or how late he had partied the night before, Elvis was always completely professional. He showed up on set when he was asked and took direction easily. But all of a sudden, right before filming began for the movie Clambake, Elvis experienced a crisis of conscience. The lackluster material of the last few years made him feel like a laughingstock. He couldn't bring himself to get out of bed and had taken to binge eating and drug consumption to get him through the days. He was visibly overweight, appeared haggard, and had fallen victim to a horrible black hair dye job that made his signature hairdo look like a wig. Now that Elvis's antics were interfering with his profits, the colonel stepped in immediately. He called all of Elvis's crew in for a meeting and laid into them. He fired a few of them and insulted the rest. Elvis didn't rush to defend any of his compatriots. But after the colonel's intervention, Elvis went back to keeping his professional obligations. He got his health back on track and finally married Priscilla in May of 1967. Exactly nine months after the wedding, Lisa Marie Presley was born. Elvis was overjoyed. He took pride in being a father, but he didn't feel the same pride when he looked at Priscilla. After the baby's birth, Elvis told his wife that he found it impossible to be sexually attracted to a woman who had a child, perhaps because of his intensely close relationship with his own mother. No matter what Priscilla tried, he refused to engage physically with her for months after their daughter's birth. The rejection wrought havoc on her self-esteem. She felt herself growing distant from her husband. By 1969, 
the gulf between the couple was massive. To get away from Priscilla completely, Elvis embarked on another tour. Priscilla found herself looking for emotional and physical support elsewhere. She had an inkling that Elvis was seeing other women anyway. So, in 1971, she began having her own affair with a man named Mike Stone. Then, around the beginning of 1972, not even five years into their marriage, Priscilla told Elvis she was leaving him. She also confessed to the affair. Despite his innumerable liaisons with other women, Elvis reacted with fury. According to Priscilla, he grabbed her and had sex with her roughly. She said it was uncomfortable, unlike it had ever been before with him. After it was over, he told her, this is how a real man makes love to his woman. Priscilla left the next morning without telling him goodbye. They officially separated in June and filed for divorce in January of 1973. Elvis fell into a long period of depression and only found solace in his daily smorgasbord of pills. There was no cheering him up. By now, most of his crew had come to accept that the good times were over. His depression left him completely apathetic. He binge ate and his weight increased. He skipped most studio sessions, and when he did show up, it seemed no song could get him excited. The only part of the job he regularly showed up for were his concerts. As always, Elvis kept up his genial attitude toward his audiences, but it was increasingly obvious he was stoned. His speech slurred, he made up bizarre lyrics to his songs on the fly, and he generally seemed checked out on stage. His drug-fueled concerts were prone to get out of hand. One night in 1973, four crazed concertgoers rushed the stage. Elvis had received death threats many times before, and this time he thought one was finally being carried out. In a flash, he emerged from his pill-induced daze and karate kicked one of the attackers. His bodyguards subdued the rest. He remained amped up the rest of the night. Despite clear evidence that the men were simply drunk fans who got out of control, Elvis was convinced they were sent to kill him by Mike Stone, the man Priscilla had cheated on him with. His friends tried to tell him this was ridiculous, but he could not be moved. He accused Stone of stealing his wife and limiting the days when he could visit his daughter. His rant devolved into repeated assertions that Stone had to die. He even asked Sonny to inquire about putting out a hit on the man. Despite being out of his depth, Sonny did what he was told. No one ever said no to Elvis. His contacts got back to him after a few days and gave him a price. $10,000 for the head of Mike Stone. Sonny hesitantly relayed the information to Elvis, who just stood and stared into Sonny's eyes for a moment. Finally, he sighed and called it off. Sonny had never been so relieved in his life. But the fact remained, Elvis had reached a new level of insanity. His friends finally tried to talk to him about the pills, but by this point, it was no use. 
Elvis assured them he knew what he was doing. For once, even the colonel was stumped about what to do. He kept himself calm by reasoning that as long as Elvis showed up where he was supposed to be, he would make his money. The best course of action was to allow Elvis to continue doing whatever he wanted. But even the colonel had a breaking point. During one concert in Vegas, Elvis cursed the hotel he was performing at and the executives who booked him there. After the show, the colonel blew up. He had worked hard on those contracts, and Elvis was making a mockery of them. His behavior had jeopardized the entire tour. Elvis was running out of patience for his old partner, too. He accused the colonel of tying him down, exploiting his talent for money. The colonel told Elvis he quit and left in a fury. The next few days were tense. The colonel sent Elvis a stream of bills for services he felt he was owed. The bills worried Elvis, but he was too proud to apologize. The entourage was worried, too. Once their payments stopped, they started going broke. They eventually convinced him to apologize and begged the colonel's forgiveness. After the apology, things proceeded according to the new normal. Elvis continued to take drugs and began supplementing his pills with cocaine. No one could tell him no. For the next two years, he continued to tour, but there were fewer and fewer flashes of the old Elvis his friends and fans had once known. He was pushing 40, his professionalism was long gone, and he treated no one with respect. Except, of course, his doctors, who helped him whenever his drug use left him bedridden, which was frighteningly frequent. His entourage confronted him multiple times about his drug use, but he refused to listen. Finally, Elvis fired all of them in July of 1976. It was a heartbreaking choice, but as he had always told them, if you don't like it, there's the door. In retaliation, the fired crew members wrote an expose titled, Elvis, What Happened? The book went into detail about his rampant drug use and medical issues. Elvis was furious and even unsuccessfully offered the publishers $1 million to block the book's release. The spurned friends claimed the book was their final attempt to wake Elvis up to the dangers of his lifestyle. But to most, it looked more like a cynical cash grab. Whatever their intentions were, the book's release had no effect on Elvis except to drive him deeper into depression. Throughout 1977, he secluded himself in his bedroom, only seeing his doctors and the occasional girlfriend. Despite his deteriorating health issues and addictions, he still held out hope he could make yet another return to public life and planned another tour. For his first stop, he was scheduled to fly out to Memphis on August 16, 1977. That morning, he woke up in a fog, as always. He had two shots of an intense drug cocktail provided by his doctors, which briefly seemed to give him enough energy to walk around. But soon enough, his energy faded, and he called for a third shot. Afterward, he told his girlfriend, Ginger Alden, that he was going into the bathroom to read. After some time, when he didn't return, Ginger knocked on the door to check on him. 
He didn't respond. Ginger slowly went inside. She found Elvis lying on the floor in a puddle of his own vomit. A doctor was called, but it was too late. Elvis was gone. He died on the toilet with 14 different drugs in his system, a clogged colon, and an overtaxed heart. He was only 42 years old. Throughout his life, Elvis beat the odds and found success with a mix of talent, charm, and a commitment to giving his fans what they wanted. But in the process, he neglected what he needed. His unprecedented fame eventually gave rise to extreme arrogance, and he confined himself to a bubble of yes-men and industry insiders that exploited him at every turn. He lived as a king, but died as a cautionary tale. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to explore the dark side of K-pop. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Terrell Wells and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.